0: This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Today is going to be different. Um, as many of you know, a bit unusual. Um, our practice at UPBC is to work through books of the Bible expositionally. That's going to resume next week, Lord willing, as we look at Proverbs 1 and 2, and then Colossians 1 after that. Hopefully you received a sermon card. There's a, a list of the sermons coming up this quarter. Hopefully you'll have that. Be praying for those sermons. Be praying for God's word as it's preached uh, this winter and spring. My goal at the end of every year is to preach a biographical sermon. Now that did not happen this year. I was sick on that at that time. Thankfully Dave Mitchell preached for me and grateful for that. But we're gonna re- we reschedule it for today. So mid year. But that was, my, that was my goal, trying to begin the year with this, looking at um, those two things together, kind of pushing those things together. Biography, okay, of a saint that's gone before us, that would serve to encourage us and strengthen us uh, by their lives, and a sermon. So I want to I preach the story, if I can, as much as I can, of this person's life, and as the Holy Spirit leads, hope that we would be challenged, that we would be convicted as we consider one life that was impacted by the same Jesus that you and I know, love, and worship. And I take that hope and framework from the book of Hebrews, uh, verse thir- chapter 13, verses 7 and 8, and says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so that's our, that's our hope, that's our prayer Um, is that we would see an outcome of someone's life who knew Jesus Christ and we would be encouraged knowing that Jesus is our Jesus. So you'll notice today that our focus is going to be on the life and faithfulness of Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century uh, Baptist pastor of uh, London's Metropolitan Tabernacle. Spurgeon is a monster, okay, in in every good way that you could think of a monster uh, in church history. So you have to basically narrow your consideration of his life you know, to try to, to get, you know, there's books about this aspect of his life and this aspect of his life. And so today we're going to be thinking particularly about the way that he engaged in ministry to the poor and needy of his day. And so to prepare for this message, I, I read this book, uh, Spurgeon and the Poor uh, by Alex Taprima. I commend it to you. I'll be referencing referencing it throughout the, the sermon. Uh, I can only whet your appetite for it. So hopefully it'll encourage you to buy it and to, to read it Yourself, but before we jump into the, to uh, Spurgeon's life and ministry to the poor, let me just tell you why I was drawn to this book to preach this sermon. Um, I think Spurgeon's ministry at the Tabernacle is especially helpful for us today, and I mean us as UPBC. Um, and, and much of what we see today, I think, in the in the realm of mercy ministry and loving the poor, caring for the needy, either kind of feels like political pandering. Or, or or it's done exclusively by sort of liberal churches who have essentially lost the gospel. You know, sometimes we've talked about the gospel of the left being a kind of meet needs and accommodate to the culture. That is kind of the gospel. And some of us know that well. We see that well in the landscape in our in our life. And so in order to avoid those mistakes, many conservative reformed Bible people have kind of veered away from social-type, mercy-type ministries out of this kind of fear of compromise. And this is why I think Spurgeon's example is so helpful. A God-centered, gospel-driven, evangelistic, reformed ministry that also loved and cared for the poor and needy all around them, that were zealous for good works, that shined the light of the beauty of Christ all over the city, and so so that's the example before us. I hope that it'll be edifying and encouraging, and the Lord by His Spirit would teach us. And so, what I would encourage you to do as I preach it is just to maybe have a blank piece of paper. You don't have to write down all the things about his biography. You can if you want, but just to maybe write down, jot down ideas, things that maybe the Lord brings to mind um, that might might be uh, for us for us to think about here in our own context. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we look together. Um, that's Spurgeon's life. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this congregation, for this opportunity that we have, this brief life that we have to know you and love you and serve you together. We thank you for it. We just want to make the most of it. And so we pray that would be true even of these next minutes, that it would be a blessing and encouragement for us, Lord, and that we would be uh, people that when, when, when people see us and, and know us, they see the gospel and they see a life of love. And we pray that you would do that for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So some um, life information about Spurgeon to start. Uh, the first biography of Spurgeon was written when he was, it was printed when he was 21 years old. Just let that sit in. Raise your hand if you're 21 and you've had a, right, none of us, right? That That's crazy. So, okay, 21 years old, there's already a biography written about him. He was born on June 19, 1834 in Kelvington, Essex, about 50 miles east of London, the oldest of 17 children, only eight of whom survived infancy. His father was a clerk in a coal merchant's office and a congregational lay minister. So think elder, bivocational pastor. And then his mother uh, devoted herself to the spiritual nurture of her family and her children at home. His grandfather, James Spurgeon, was a nonconformist minister for more than 50 years and just had an incredible influence on Spurgeon's life. He lived with his grandparents from the ages of one to six years old. And among other things, it was his grandfather that introduced Spurgeon to the Puritans. And so Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Fox's Book of Martyrs, Baxter's Call to the Unconverted, these things became Um, central for Spurgeon. He would remain a lifelong admirer of the Puritans, and by the end of his life, he actually had one of the largest Puritan libraries in the world. In his teenage years, however, he struggled with what he described as a deep and bitter sense of sin and an internal struggle with doubt and fear to overcome the state of his soul. He'd obviously been taught the gospel. He'd obviously knew and understand understood that he was a sinner before a holy God and that he deserved hell because of his sin, because of him falling short of God's glory. And he struggled with that reality. And it continued until a cold day in January, maybe like today, in 1850. Actually, it was much worse than today. He was born again. Here's how it happened. The morning of his conversion, Spurgeon walked out of his parents' house, to attend a nearby church, possibly to hear his father preach. Um, But as he set out that morning, there was a terrible blizzard. And as conditions got worse, he realized he had to get inside quickly. And so he entered a nearby primitive Methodist church on Artillery Street. And Spurgeon remembers that the regular preacher was unable to be there that day because of the storm. And so a poor man of little learning stepped up into the pulpit and began to preach in a lowly style with a humble country accent. His text was Isaiah fifty-five twenty-two. Look unto me and ye be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Listen how Spurgeon describes the man's sermon. He says this, quote, Just fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death. If you don't obey my text, but if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon says, I saw at once the way of salvation. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away and that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Friend, you never know what's going to happen when you call someone to look to Jesus. Amen? You never know how God may use you, brother or sister, mom or dad, to preach the gospel to the next Charles Spurgeon. The main guy was sick that day. And so this other fella gets up, uneducated, not prepared, trusting the Lord, trusting his word. And God saves this man through the power of the gospel. The the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's his spirit working through his word. And so this poor man's sermon changed Spurgeon's eternal destiny and how many others, thousands upon thousands, were changed. So, friend, we just need to know that today uh, you need to know, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to look, look, look to Him. You are in a desperate place apart from Him. You've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and apart from His grace, deserve God's justice. But God sent his only son to come and live a perfect life, a life of obedience and love and faith in our place, and then to die a death in our place to absorb the penalty that was ours because of our sin. And he rose from the grave and now calls us to look to him. Look to him in faith. Turn from your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Friend, I encourage you to look to the Lord. The early years of his ministry were followed by uh, great fruit. After his conversion, he showed the fruit of spiritual vitality and passion for the Lord. So that was January. By February, he was distributing gospel tracts. He was admitted to membership in his church in April. He was baptized by immersion in May of that year. Soon after, he started visiting people in the church on Saturdays and doing some lay preaching. He began his first ministry in a nearby village at the age of 17. The church there grew from 40 to over 400 members. He was referred to as the boy preacher of the Finns. And the word just began to spread about Spurgeon. And then after only 18 months, he's called to pastor one of London's most prominent Baptist churches on New Park Street in Southwark. So Benjamin Keach, John Gill, John Rippon, those were the previous pastors of this church. And if you don't know those names, you can talk to me, and we'll, I'll show you some, some things that they've written, some stalwarts of the faith. And so he, stir, he served New Park Street Chapel from 1854 to 1860, during which time he met and courted and married his wife, Susanna. By all accounts, they enjoyed a wonderfully happy marriage, although it was marked by consistent suffering. Susanna was a, essentially an invalid, who spent most of her married life at home. And as for Spurgeon, he suffered greatly from rheumatic gout, chronic kidney problems. Uh, He was often out of the pulpit for months because of illness and was also regularly engaged in a serious battle with depression. And yet his ministry flourished. It grew by hundreds of new members each year. And so they began to raise funds to erect a new building that could accommodate the numbers. March 25th, 1861, Spurgeon preached his first sermon in the newly erected Metropolitan Tabernacle in South London. And he began his sermon with these words. I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. But if I am asked to say, what is my creed? I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. That's why I love Spurgeon. He would preach Christ from that pulpit to crowds of over 6,000 on Sundays, both in the morning and the evening for the next 30 years. And the tabernacle uh, would become the center for not only his preaching ministry, but his mercy ministry. Ministry to the Poor and Needy of London. So by 1844, the list of active ministries operating out of the tabernacle numbered to be 66. And we'll look at some of those in detail. I would just commend the book to you to see them all. And it was during this season that his publishing ministry is kind of taking off. The publication of his sermons, his monthly magazine, The Sword and the Trowel. Some of his most famous books were coming out. So John uh, Plowman's talk. Uh, morning by morning, evening by evening, the treasury of David, the very popular commentary on the Psalms. So just kind of closing out this life section part, this biographical section, uh, his last days were troubled and embroiled in controversy. It's become to, to, uh, to be known as the downgrade controversy, which began kind of with these articles that he was writing in the sword and the trowel, He spoke out about what he thought was a downgrade among Baptists of his day around kind of crucial doctrines like the infallibility and inspiration of the Scriptures, the necessity and substitutionary nature of the atonement, and the existence and eternality of hell. So he ended up resigning from the Baptist Union after being accused of divisiveness. And he actually turned out to be right. that The association was drifting from faithfulness. But many say that that controversy played a big part in his early death. He died at 57. And he spent his last days in Mentone, France, uh, dying there at the Hotel Beau In Jan- And he, he, he passed away on January 31st, 1892. It's estimated that over 100,000 people attended the memorial services that took place at the tabernacle. So that was the kind of honored um, life um, that we see in in Spurgeon and that life that people came to to see and respect was dedicated to the Lord Jesus in both word and deed. And so now we want to just turn to the ministry of Spurgeon, the ministry of Spurgeon, especially his ministry to the poor. In one place, uh, De Prima uh, summarizes Spurgeon's thinking this way. He said, he believed that one of the effects of the new birth was that it transforms the individual sinner into a purveyor of mercy. So he connected the new birth with a life of mercy. Those that experience the grace and compassion of Christ through regeneration will themselves become gracious and compassionate toward others. At our church, we often will say that uh, it's the love of Christ that compels us, that that's our our motivation for the ministry that we do. And we also say that the, the gospel creates a life of love. And that's an intentional phrase, is that that the gospel is not a life of love. That those two things are not equal, not the same, one creates the the other. And so there's a priority, but there's also an inseparability of both, of the gospel and a life of love. And Spurgeon saw that particularly as he talks about uh, regeneration, as he exhorts his congregation. In one place he says, called with a nobler calling, let us exhibit As a result of our regenerate nature, a loftier compassion for the suffering sons of men. He viewed a Christian without compassion for the needy as a walking contradiction. He said, sympathy is especially a Christian duty. Consider what the Christian is, and you will say that if every other man were selfish, he should be interested. If there were nowhere else a heart that had sympathy for the needy, there should be one found in every Christian breast. In 1876, he said, If Christ has saved you, he will save you from being selfish. You will love your fellow men. You will desire to do them good. You will endeavor to help the poor. You will try to instruct the ignorant. He who truly becomes a Christian becomes, in that very same way, a practical philanthropist. No man is a true Christian who is unchrist-like. The true Christian lives for others. In a word, he lives for Christ. When Spurgeon uses the word uh, philanthropist, don't think Bill Gates, lots of money giving over to the poor needy who, who need it. Think just exactly what that word kind of means. Take it as literally as you can, just a lover of man, a lover of your fellow man, someone disposed to compassion for the needy. He reserved some of his most stern words for professing Christians who showed little regard for the poor. He feared that some of his own congregation, his large congregation in London, were indifferent to the poor among them. Listen to his admonition from a sermon in 1866. He says, You may talk about your religion till you have worn your tongue out, and you may give others to believe you, and you may remain in the church 20 years, and nobody ever detect in you anything like an inconsistency. But if it be in your power, and you do nothing to relieve the necessities of the poor members of Christ's body, you will be damned, as sure as if you were a drunkard or a whoremongerer. If you have no care for God's church, this text applies to you and will as surely sink you to the lowest hell as if you had been a common blasphemer. I don't know if you got any amens after that. Um, now, you'll notice there Spurgeon is addressing particularly care for poor members of the church, not simply poor at large. And I think his point there is, is clear not to neglect the poor in the church. Uh, as Christians have a special responsibility to our brothers and sisters in the family of God. Uh, this is the way we, we still think about that. We still try to apply Galatians 6.10. Our deacons do as we think through benevolence needs. Um, he, he embraced the words as well of Paul in Galatians 6.10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So the priority... Uh, for, of our doing good is to be to those in the local church, household of the faith. But it doesn't mean the first part of the verse is any less applicable. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. This is a hypothetical situation, but pretend that I told my daughter to clean her room and especially focus on her closet that she came and, and because the closet was especially messy. And then she came back to me and said everything was done, but she had only cleaned her closet and not the room, and left her room a mess. Did she obey my command? Of course not. Spurgeon didn't believe that Christians should limit their charity to those within the church alone. He argued this, The Christian sympathy should ever be of the widest character. He described it as a precious stone of love cast into the crystal pool of a renewed heart. This stone of love should generate ever-widening circles of sympathy. The first ring is the Christian's household. The second is the household of faith, namely the church. Spurgeon then said, look once more, for the ever-widening ring has reached the very limit of the lake and included all men in its area. And so he consistently argues that the new birth causes this selfish and self-absorbed sinner to become loving toward their neighbors, tender toward the poor, and compassionate toward the needy. Listen to some passages that help us kind of make that connection between uh, our new birth and the life that follows, the good works that follow. Titus 2.14, speaking of Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 3.8, the saying is trustworthy and I want to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Uh, James one twenty seven. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Spurgeon spent uh, the two of the big benevolent ministries were his almshouses for widows, orphanage um, for orphans. First John three. Uh, 16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So again, the gospel creates a life of love. And that life of love is purchased for us by Jesus Christ and modeled for us by Jesus Christ purchased for us, and modeled for us. And so Spurgeon regularly argued that Christians should be imitators of Christ, always seeking to follow his example. And that's kind of in the face of some suspicion that might have come from some of his day, maybe even from our day, that would consider the the person of Christ and his effect on our lives mainly, kind of only, through the lens of his death and resurrection on our behalf. And so his example is not only relevant insofar as he, he lived the perfect life, that we could never live, so that we could receive the record of his righteous life. That's kind of as far as it should go. But Prima argues, and I agree, that's a shallow and unbiblical way of, of thinking because it fails to take into account the express commands from Jesus to imitate him, imitate his example, not to mention just the call of discipleship, follow me. And so for Spurgeon, engaging in active Christian work on behalf of the needy is part of being faithful to the example of Jesus Himself. He once summarized Jesus' work this way. He said, We went about not, he went about not discoursing upon benevolence, but doing good. He itinerated not to stir up missionary spirit, but to preach glad tidings to the poor. Where others theorized, he wrought or brought about. Where they planned, he achieved. Where they despaired, he triumphed. Compared with him, our existence is a mere windbag. (laughs) His life was solid, essential action, and ours a hazy dream. An unsubstantial would be yet is not. And he kind of ends with a prayer. Most blessed Son of the highest, thou who workest evermore, teach us also how to begin to live, ere we have stumbled into our graves while only talking about purposes and resolve. So may we not just be hearers of the word or talkers of the word, but doers of the word. He believed that that part of the reason why so few follow the example of Jesus in this regard is because they were willfully ignorant to the needs around them. Willfully ignorant. So blind, kind of wrapped up in their own lives so they don't see the needs around them. He uh, described London this way. He said, London is a wicked, wretched city full of scenes of abject misery. There are sights in this metropolis that might melt a heart of steel and make a Nabal generous. If for one night you could see all the harlotry and infamy, if you could but once see the rascality of London gathered into one mass, your hearts would melt with woe and bitterness. On another occasion, he said, I want you to help the heathen of the world, but I want you to begin with caring for the great heathen world of London. Spurgeon loved the the parable of the good Samaritan. I wish we had time to look at his sermons on that passage in Luke 10. You could pray uh, for us as we'll be looking at that passage this this spring. But he saw it as a great picture of the, the, the church's responsibility for the great needs in London as their neighbor. So you know, he says, quote, there is... Poverty and sickness around you. And if you pass by on the other side, you will have looked at it. You will have known about it. And on your heads will be the criminality of having left the wounded man unhelped. Observing that the Samaritan was helping a man who presumably was a Jew, uh, Spurgeon noted this We are to relieve real distress, irrespective of creed, as the Samaritan did. He practiced what he preached. His benevolence efforts extended to needy men and women, regardless of denominational and, in some case, religious background. He concluded by saying, let us not treat the poor like dogs whom we fling a bone, nor visit the sick like superior beings who feel that they are stooping down to inferiors when they enter their rooms. But in the sweet tenderness of real love, learned at Jesus' feet, let us imitate this good Samaritan. Why? Because these people are made in the image of God. These people are going to spend eternity in heaven and hell. And we have an opportunity to love them and introduce them to Jesus Christ. Before I mention some more specific benevolent ministries, I just want to say something about the priority of preaching the gospel, the priority of evangelism for Spurgeon. Uh, De Prima observes that his emphasis on benevolence and good works flowed out of his preaching of the gospel and his passion for soul winning. And so Spurgeon always considered preaching unto the salvation of souls to be his primary work, and it is our primary work as well. His interest in social ministry grows out of his more prominent concern to see men and women one to faith in Christ. Spurgeon believe the principles, the, the, the principal means of changing the world and building the church would not be political policy or systematic reform, but individual regeneration and widespread revival. Not to say that he wouldn't speak into political issues of his time. He did certainly American slavery. It cost him a lot of money to speak against American slavery. People stopped buying his books, uh, reading his, his magazine, uh, but he stuck to his guns under immense pressure, even death threats. Um, The same with political issues that would come up in his own day. You can read about the the details more um, in the book. But he clearly believed and taught that the church's mission was to preach the gospel and make disciples. And among the many benevolent ministries that kind of operated out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, almost all of them feature gospel proclamation at the center. And so he, he also believed that the gospel proclamation... And good works, so word and deed were inseparable in the ministry of the local church. He said that a benevolent ministry of the church has evangelistic appeal and apologetic power. There's a great deal of freedom as to how each church in their context stewards this responsibility. Of course, we, we know that. So we're not, we're not called to be just like the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Tabernacle, or we're not laying out today several different mercy ministries to say, if you don't you know, participate in these ministries, you're in sin. We're not binding your conscience to those things. There's, there's great freedom, and it all depends on your situation in life, the way the, the Spirit is giving you opportunity in your own life, your own, your own time now to do this. Um, we, should, we, should, we should know that and just, and just understand that's, that there's a broad call here. Uh, the, the, but the question is just, just how can we in our surrounding ministry, our surrounding city, do what Jesus says in Matthew 5, let our light shine before others that they may see our good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. That's one way that from a sermon in 1862, here's one way that Spurgeon described the connection between love and good works and proclaiming the gospel. He says this, I would that um, we who have a purer faith could remember a little more the intimate connection between the body and the soul. Go to the poor man and tell him of the bread of heaven, but first give him the bread of the earth, for how shall he hear you with a starving body? Talk to him of the robes of Jesus' righteousness, but you will do it all the better when you have provided a garment with which he can cover his nakedness. It seems an idle talk to a poor man if you talk to him of spiritual things and cruelly refuse him to help to temporals. So I was encouraged yesterday when some of us went out and, and met some folks who were, and it was very cold yesterday morning and were able to give some supplies, some, some blankets and some socks and other things. That's helpful as we're, as we're encouraging them to put their faith in Jesus. But Spurgeon goes on, he says, What about you in the pew? You ask a person to hear your preacher, come to church. But he knows that you are crotchety, short-tempered, illiberal. He's not likely to think much of the word, which, as he thinks, has made you what you are. But if, on the other hand, he sees your compassionate spirit, he will first be attracted to you, then next to what you would say. And then you may lead him as with a thread and bring him to listen to the truth as it is in Jesus, who can tell but thus, through the sympathy of your tender heart, you may be the means of bringing him to Christ. So we want to let the, the gospel that we preach match the life that we live. Does the gospel shape our life so much so that an invitation to know Jesus makes sense, or does it, would it create a hurdle to overcome? Because of time, I'm just going to give you a bullet point list now, of some of the ministries that led by, led by Spurgeon that just to give you a flavor okay, for his heart, for ministry, for gospel ministry, mercy ministry in his day. The first one might, you might not expect, but it's the pastor's college, the pastor's college. He described his pastor's college in this way. This is my life's work to which I believe God has called me. Okay? If you want a treasury of pastoral gold and feel for what the students receive, go read lectures to my students and you'll be blessed. Here's my quick summary of the pastor's college. His vision was to train the every man to, to preach to every man. To train the every man to preach to every man. Most students that were a part of the pastor's college could not afford it. They couldn't afford it. So he personally paid for the tuition of many and then raised funds to support the rest in the curriculum. He says this, our men seek to preach efficiently to get to the heart of the masses, to evangelize the poor. This is the college's college's ambition, this and nothing else. And so see that he's he's training and equipping people to go out and minister to the masses. It's not an elitist institution. The college trained some 863 ministers between 1856 and 1892, and at the time of his death, over one-fifth. Of all the Baptist ministers in England and Wales had been trained at the pastor's college. That's incredible. An incredible impact on on the churches, incredible impact on the lost. Another another kind of landmark for him was the the orphanage that he began, the Stockwell Orphanage. Close behind in Spurgeon's affections and time commitments. And this is what I love about the orphanage. You can say so so much about it, but the vision came out of a prayer meeting at church. That's where this orphanage kind of was born, was a prayer meeting. In 1866, the congregation, Spurgeon, they're asking the Lord, send us a new work and the means to carry it out. Okay, that was their prayer at a prayer meeting. Send us a new work and the means to carry it out. I love that. We don't know what it is or how we're gonna pay for it, Lord, so we're beseeching you, And you won't be surprised to know that a large, you know, I think it's $20,000 check came in the mail. And on September 9th, 1869, after that gift was given and other gifts came in, the Stockwell Orphanage opened its doors. And today it's known as Spurgeon's Children's Charity. It's one of the most successful children's organizations in the United Kingdom. I wish we had more time to discuss the mission stations that would become church plants, the the, the schools, the almshouses, so housing the poor widows, Susanna Spurgeon's book ministry to poor pastors, uh, the ragged schools, which would educate the poor in basic English and and, and educational skills, the, the, the Culpergate Association for Christian Literature to the Poor, and more, many, many more. So many of these ministries were anchored and centered on the church itself. The Christian church, Spurgeon wrote, was designed from the first to be aggressive. And you just get that feeling like they're just they're going out and going after it. He urges members, we must go from strength to strength and be a missionary church. Every member was encouraged to be involved in loving their neighbor, letting their light shine for the glory of God. He says this, we have an allotted work to do. If we are the Lord's elect, let us take care that we do it. You are a track distributor. Go on with your work. Do it earnestly. You are a Sunday school teacher. Go on and do it as unto God and not unto man. But let us all do something for Christ. I will never believe there is a Christian in the world who cannot do something. Again, just as you're, as you're praying, you're asking the question, what, what can I do? What has God set me up? How has he positioned me? Where, what can I do? What can we do? Spurgeon's ministry is just a reminder of the connection between the proclamation of the gospel and the good works that accompany the Christian's life. And so, Christian, believer, when you look around, what do you see? I found often when people see needs, um, sometimes that's one little clue that God may be equipping them or preparing them to meet those needs themselves. So you're going to be really careful now telling me needs that you see in the church because I'm going to say, "Hey, this is you." What do you see when you look around? When you look around our city, when you look around our neighborhood, do you see the poor that need Jesus? You may not see this, but do you know about sex trafficking hubs that happen in our in our city? Prostitution. Do you just look and see a black hole of the gospel? Like there are people, so many people who are living their lives apart from knowing Jesus. And we need to go and proclaim the gospel to them. Do you look and see a university on our doorstep? Do you see a growing number of refugees from all over the world that come into this country and there are certain ministries that exist to help them, but at some point, sometimes those ministries run out and, 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 or there's there's a need for help. I was having a conversation this week about that very thing. As DePrima points out, it's, it's of no lasting good to feed a belly for a lifetime, only for it to starve in hell for eternity. Nonetheless, a concern for the physical needs of people is by no means at odds with a concern for the, their spiritual needs. Maybe just think about this latest cold snap that came through. Um, I know some of you from the north laugh at us in Houston when it gets cold and we freak out, but it is just the way it is. Um, I don't know how you thought about what your mind was kind of, kind of going through there. Did, did your mind go from kind of wrapping your own pipes, thinking about your own house, to the widows and senior adults in our church? And then those who, who might actually need a place to stay in our church, those who might have needs and, 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 and um, might be just in a, in, a, in a difficult place, and then did it maybe go out to those who are actually sleeping outside in the 20-degree weather last week? Just are there needy people within our reach? How can, we, how can we serve them? How can we love them? How can we be a city on a hill that acts like a lighthouse, bringing in lost ships at sea to the shoreline of Jesus Christ, into safety and rest? A people zealous for good works, compelled by the love of Christ. I just want to end with one more Spurgeon story. Um this, there was an American temperance activist named John Go. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but he traveled to London to see in person England's greatest preacher. Okay, so his reputation is at its height at this point, 1879, and he wants to see the man who preaches to 6,500 people and, and holds their attention and writes all these books and all these wonderful magazines. But, but the, one of the things that Spurgeon did first was took him on a tour of the Stockwell Orphanage. And while he was there, he was called to the bedside of a boy who was terminally ill. And this is just a story that just gives a little bit of a, sheds a little bit of light on Spurgeon's heart. And I think it's just really encouraging. He sat with this dying boy and and Spurgeon placed the child's hand in his own hand. and And he told him this, Jesus loves you. He bought you with his precious blood and he knows what is best for you. It seems hard for you to lie here and listen to the shouts of the healthy boys outside at play. But soon, Jesus will take you home, and then he will tell you the reason, and you will be so glad. Spurgeon prayed, O Jesus, Master, this dear child is reaching out his thin hand to find thine. Touch him, dear Savior, with thy loving warm clasp. Lift him as he passes the cold river, that his feet might not be chilled by the water of death. Take him home in thine own good time. Comfort and cherish him till that good time comes. Show him thyself as he lies there and let him see thee and know thee more and more as his loving Savior. He he closes his prayer and he offers uh, the nurse. He encourages the nurse to bring a little bird, a canary to sit by his bed to uh, encourage him in a cage. All the while, this activist guy is taking notes, and he's watching these things and witnessing the scene. And later he recorded in his autobiography this. He said, I had seen Mr. Spurgeon holding by his power 6,500 persons in a breathless interest. I knew him as a great man, universally esteemed and beloved. But as he sat by the bedside of a dying pauper child whom his beneficence had rescued... He was to me a greater and grander man than when swaying the mighty multitude at his will. Just a great picture of his heart, right? Of, the, of the, both the public and private ministry, the gospel and the ministry of love that we want to characterize our own hearts and our own lives. We, we, none of us needs to be Spurgeon. I hope you don't expect your pastor to be the next Spurgeon. We simply need to be faithful because Spurgeon's Jesus is our Jesus. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that reminder, the wonderful reminder that you're here and you're with us, and we just pray that now you would um, just do a work as we sing and as we pray of uh, helping us to just examine our own hearts, um, Lord. We we know we're not we're not trying to to lay guilt, and you're not trying to lay a guilt trip on us. But but that we just examine and think about the wonder and be reminded of the wonder of the new birth of the gospel, and and then how much we are lingering over that glory and how much it is translating into our own lives in love for others. Lord, we we desperately need your direction for how we can best um, adorn the gospel here in our own lives and here at UPVC. We pray that you would give us that wisdom. We pray that you would help us to always be faithfully committed to the good news and that we would see that good news produce lives that that compel others to see Jesus. We know we're all at different stages of life. We all have different commitments and things. And, but Lord, whatever it, we are, wherever we find ourselves, would you show us what a step of obedience looks like in this direction to let our light shine before others that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.